All right, we are in Revelation chapter 1. We are finishing today the prologue. <clears throat> We're going to be focusing in on verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> the way that this verse, uh, this, this section plays out is it's somewhat of an overview of the entire book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, verse 7 is a summary of the book. The main theme is found in verse 7. So I'm going to try to give you a little bit of an overview and talk about some of the things, and they'll be highlighted in this verse, and then it's, you're going to see all this developed over the weeks and months that we get into the book. Just to give you a little background, one of the churches that is mentioned in Revelation is over in Revelation chapter 2. Let's look at one of those churches. It kind of gives you a, we're going to be going through these in the upcoming weeks and months, but just to give you a little bit of a background of those that would be reading this letter for the first time and hearing, and there's a specific message, and it kind of gives you an idea of who, a little bit about one of the churches, specifically Smyrna in verse 8. Gives you a little bit of a background of what these people might have been uh, going through or encountering during this time. It says in verse 8, And to the ch- angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. It's important today that we're going to see that there, the readers and the understanders or, or the listeners to this letter, especially originally, and the setting needed hope. They were living in a world filled with sin. They were living in a world filled with persecution. They were living in a world where people hated them. After all, the world hates Christ's own, right? We learned this back in John when we went through it in 1 John. Today we're going to see further as we examine the second coming of Jesus that there is great hope found in this message despite the circumstances we live in. I promise you that as we go through this book, you are going to be given great hope also. I think of John's situation. We'll talk about this more next week, the writer of the letter. He would have not only been giving this letter to these people and giving them great hope, but it also would have given him encouragement. What do you think he was thinking? He was exiled in a very harsh circumstance, Most likely, there was a guard forcing slave labor on him, insufficient food, and most likely lacking clothing. He was around 90 years old, and all the other apostles had died out. He, roughly 30 years before, most of them had died out. 60 years before, Christ had gone up into heaven. He had watched them go out uh, up into the clouds and leave. What do you think John was thinking? What do you think his battles would have been like on 
exile, the real exile island of Patmos? What would it have been like for him? Forced slave labor, insufficient food, horrible conditions, an older man, 90 years old roughly. Do you think he would have been encouraged by these visions of the end times and Christ returning? Absolutely. And we're going to see today that we can get great hope from it too. There's, I don't know about you, but you watch the news for 15 minutes on the nightly news. It can be a little bit depressing, can it? A little discouraging, huh? Wars everywhere. Thousands of people dying. Children dying of starvation. AIDS is rampant and millions are dying. Millions of babies are being killed. It's just horrible. One thing after the next. Wild, lewd immorality. Watch the TV, right? Don't watch the TV. Constantly. Are you like me? Do you sometimes get to that place of, what are we doing here? What is this like? Why? Do you watch the world fall around by, around you and go, Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. How many of you have prayed that before? I know I have. I long to be separated from this body of death I carry around on top of that. How about you? And I long for the Lamb of God to come. How about you? That's what this book's all about. It's about encouraging the reader that he's coming. And he's coming soon. That's what it's all about. Let's look at our passage. Revelation 1, 7 and 8. This is the end of the prologue. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, great words. Oh, Father, help us to get a glimpse of the return of our Savior, the warrior king, the Lamb of God. Help us to understand and to get our focus eternally on you. Oh, God, encourage our hearts. Give us a glimpse of our Savior today as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. This is the last, like I said, week I'm going to cover the prologue. Next week we'll begin to look at the things which you have seen, which would be verses 9 all the way down through the first chapter. <clears throat> Remember, we talked about how the outline of the book is very simple, found in verse 19. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. In verses 9 through 18, you see the things which you have seen. Verses 1 through 8 is the prologue, the beginning of the book. And that's what we're in 
today. We've already seen that there's a huge influence of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. John has quoted or alluded to as many as five books of the Bible. Daniel 2, Zechariah 4, Psalm 9, uh, Daniel 7, several other places probably. And today we'll see that there's at least two more Old Testament allusions in the, con- in the conclusion in verse 7 specifically, and then probably in 8 there's another one or two. All the way through, the Old Testament is important to understanding Revelation. What makes Revelation hard to understand, ultimately for most of us, is, be- is our small grasp of the Old Testament. This is one of the reasons why I've been kind of petitioning Mark and, and even Ryan to help by supplementing our understanding of the Old Testament. I've been really pushing Mark, hey, this is where I want more on knowing the Old Testament. I love that Mark's going through the Old Testament with y'all in Sunday school. If you're not able to come, you ought to come because he's going through it. It'll help you. It gives you ideas more and more about the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament sets the groundwork for understanding what the New Testament is all about. And it pointed to Christ, and it helps us to understand the second coming of Christ very well. So I'm going to be alluding to it all the way through the book of Revelation. But again, we start with verse 7. He starts with this little word, behold. It's a Uh, listen up phrase, you know, you've probably heard Pastor Mike, I do this often in my preaching, and Charles Stanley's famous for it, he says, listen to me real closely, listen and hear, everybody paying attention now, listen up, this is what he's talking about here at the beginning, this little word is like the call to pay attention, it is what's called a, it comes often before a prophetic oracle, or before an announcement of prophecy, And specifically, it's mentioned throughout the book of Revelation five other times. This little word, behold, comes before in a major announcement of something that's going to happen. And it's directly associated with the work of Christ four other times in the Bible, or in Revelation, rather. This behold calls the reader and calls you to take note of the main theme of the entire book of Revelation. Right here, verse 7 gives you the entire theme of the book of Revelation. It's the coming of Jesus. And I want you to get four main parts, and it's not in, it's in this, but it's in the book of Revelation. It kind of is developed in this idea of the coming of Jesus. These four main parts we will see as they unfold in the book of Revelation. I want you to get these before we start with our main aspect or body of the sermon. The four main parts are the preparatory wrath, This is in under behold still. The preparatory wrath. This is involved in the coming of Jesus. His actual return, that is the coming, literally he comes. And the establishment of his kingdom. And fourth, the new heavens and the new earth. All of this is encapsulated in this coming, his coming. The preparatory wrath his actual return, the establishment of the kingdom, and the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 7 is a summary of that. The coming of Christ is the coming one involves all of that, all of the book of Revelation. He is coming with the clouds. Now, 
as mentioned, this mentions two Old Testament prophecies, most likely looking at Daniel 7.13. You can look that up on your own. And Zechariah 12.10. Those two you might want to look at this afternoon. Again, these two Old Testament prophecies carry with them the idea of God's judgment at his return. God's judgment at his return. What we're going to do is break down these final two verses of the prologue into two main points, just like he does. The first point is the promise. The second point is the guarantee. The first point is the promise. The second is the guarantee. The promise is found in verse 7. The promise of Christ's second coming is our first main point. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. That's the promise. Again, a promise is a pledge or a commitment to accomplish something. In this case, the pledge encompasses all that is involved, like I mentioned, in the second coming of Jesus. This verse, like mentioned, gives a summary of all the events. Here we're going to look at three parts to this promise, though, that are unfolded in verse 7. Again, three parts to this promise. First, notice, Christ is coming in glorious judgment. Under part 1, the promise of the Christ's second coming, we have Christ is coming in glorious judgment. That's found at the very beginning. Behold... He's coming with the clouds. That little phrase, he is coming with the clouds. And under this glorious judgment, there's two parts there too. Notice, he is coming and with the clouds. I wanted to look at both of those and it's important for you to get. There's a title in that. You need to get this. He is coming could literally be translated, the one who is coming or he who is coming. It's a title. It's a title given to the Messiah. It's alluded to many times through, guess where? The Old Testament. The one who is coming. As a matter of fact, it became a title that was so common that when Jesus shows up on the scene, what do people call him? The one who's coming. The one who's coming. Let me give you an example. Turn with me to John or Matthew 11. Let's look, Matthew 11. This is the coming one. The one who is coming. It's interesting as you make your way over to Matthew 11. This is a present tense. The coming one. Behold, he's coming, or the one who is coming with the clouds. It's a present tense. Has Jesus returned? No. Why is it a present tense then? Because he's coming. It's as if he's already stepped out. He's already in process. It's inevitable. He is coming. He is the coming one. <clears throat> Though it's been thousands of years, it is imminent. At any moment, he could step out. Look at verse or 3 rather, of chapter 11. John the Baptist asked the question, sends word, right? In verse, let's read verse 2. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, 
Are you, and it says the expected one, it should be translated, the coming one? Or shall we look for someone else? This is the coming one. Same concept, most likely alluding to Daniel chapter 7 that I mentioned to you before. The one who comes with the clouds. The son of man who will come with the clouds. Then look over at John 11. Martha does the same thing. John 11. The coming one. An allusion to the Messiah. John 11, 27. Remember, Lazarus has died. Martha meets Jesus out there. And she says, I know that, uh, she says, you know, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says, you know, uh, let's look at it. It's a really great little line here. Verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he, the one who comes into the world, the coming one, literally, the one who comes into the world. She understood the Messiah's title to be that who comes into the world. Matter of fact, Psalm 118 has this idea, and it's alluded to in the triumphal entry, right? Blessed is he, the one who comes into the world. It's the coming one. Most likely an allusion to that from Daniel 7. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1. Psalm 118, Matthew 21, 9, 23, 39, Luke 19, 38. Look them up. The coming one, Jesus. This is a title describing him, the one who is coming. Notice how he's going to come, though, in verse 7. The one who is coming with the clouds. Now, when you think of clouds, just take a second here. Look up at me for a second. When you think of clouds, what do you think of? I think white, fluffy things, right? I think, yeah, a little bit of blue and a little shiny on the thing. When I think of clouds, I don't think of that big of a deal, right? Why? Well, in our setting, I was just thinking and meditating on this. Our, our setting, when we see clouds, normally lots of clouds, what do we do? We go inside. But if you were living back in the Bible days, clouds meant a lot. Lots. Because uh, their roofs might not have been as good as ours. <laughs> they might have been out traveling. Clouds were a scary thing where floods would come and where mudslides would come in that area. Clouds were not something that were looked at with great joy. They were like, uh-oh, it's going to rain. Clouds were directly associated in the Old Testament, especially with God's judgment, specifically. Matter of fact, let me show you. It's really interesting. 
So, so when we first read this, behold, he's coming in the clouds, we might think, oh, this is great. <laughs> Jesus coming in the clouds, white fluffy clouds, beautiful scene, right? No, wrong image. You got the wrong idea in your mind. If you're thinking of it, white fluffy things, it's going to be a beautiful, spectacular show. It's going to be a beautiful, spectacular show of his wrath. I said, really? Yes. Look with me. We'll make you flip some more. Go with me to Isaiah 19. What do clouds look like and what do they represent in the Old Testament? Over and over and over. We're just going to make our way through the prophets real quick. Look at this. 19. Isaiah 19. Man, I'm making y'all work today. Might want to get your flip tabs out. Put them on the Bible there. It'll be easier. Okay, here we go. Look. Let's see. Clouds. 19.1. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. What is that? That's a coming judgment. Look also over at Jeremiah. A couple books over to the right. Jeremiah. Actually, one book over to the right. Jeremiah 4. Look at this one. Jeremiah 4.13. Behold, he goes up like clouds... And his chariot like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Crowds, clouds associated with what? Judgment. God's judgment. Again, look over at Lamentations. Lamentations. Another book. Lamentations. Two. One. Lamentations 2 1. It's titled in the Nazbe, God's Anger Over Israel. 2 1. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Y'all getting the point? Cloud is what? Judgment. It's associated with judgment. The coming one. I want to read you one more. Ezekiel. One more book. There's several more though. Ezekiel. And why would I read this? Because I want you to get a point here. What are we finding out about God? He's a wrathful, just God. A judge. Now. You don't hear this very often from pulpits, do you? <laughs> Normally, what do we talk about? The love of God. But it's interesting here. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, what's being emphasized? Wrath. Judgment. Justice. And it's going to be emphasized again in Revelation. We'll see in a second. Ezekiel 1, 28 and 29. How does Ezekiel respond to the one in the clouds? As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, 
So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. What's the fell on my face? Whoa, fear. Clouds associated with judgment. Let me ask you a question. How do you view Christ? What is your view of Christ? When was the last time you fell on your face at the thought of seeing Christ? When was the last time we shuddered over the glory of the Savior coming? Joel 2.2, you don't have to go there. Go back to Revelation, though. Zephaniah 1.15. But turn with me to Revelation 14. Clouds are mentioned again in Revelation. What did I say? Context helps to understand the book of Revelation. If it's mentioned somewhere else, then it helps to what? Explain what it means. Use context greater and farther. Nearer and further context. Revelation 14. Look at this picture of Christ. Revelation 14, 14. All right, here we go. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, there's our word, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. What is this? What's happening? This is God's judgment. This is Christ's judgment to distinguish and show who are the true and who are the false in the tribulation period. This is the beginning of the wrath, or one of the scenes of the wrath of God. So, back to Revelation 1. When we read this, behold, he is coming with the clouds. It's not some gentle savior sitting up there. Here he comes. Everything's good. This is, whoa, whoa, be careful. It's coming. He's coming. The wrathful one. By the way, I don't believe this is a pointing to the rapture here. It has absolutely nothing to do with the rapture. This has to do with the second coming as in his judgment. That is, it incorporates his pre-wrath and his return. Okay? He's not talking specifically about what's going to happen to the church. He's He's talking specifically about the coming of the Messiah to bring about the final judgment on the earth. Revelation, folks, is going to give us a view of Christ that provokes a healthy fear of his return. That's what we need. Mark that down. That will be the thing that you will get, I pray. Again, we know this throughout the Old Testament. I think what we've missed is is that we come to the New Testament and we think that God changed Did God change? No. 
No. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The Christ of the Old Testament is, guess what? The Christ of the New Testament. And he is to return. I think it's important for us all to understand that Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who, what? Fear him. On those who hope for his loving kindness. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Psalm 103, 13, just as the father has encompassed on his children, compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who Fear him. Key. Fear. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the first element we see in this promise is that Christ is coming in glorious judgment. That's what he's pointing to here. He is coming with the clouds in judgment. The next part of that promise is... Christ is coming in judgment. His coming in judgment will be seen by all. Will be seen by all. Notice, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. All the inhabitants of the earth at that time when he returns will see him. This means that every person will, who resides on the earth at that point will experience Christ. That includes the blind person. Anybody that's here will experience him. No one will be left out from facing his impending sickle. No one. He will separate the evil from the genuine believer. And he will pour out his wrath on the earth. There's a passage that later on we'll talk about this. The wrath of the Lamb. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The wrath of the Lamb. Again, I've said this, but get it. When we think of a Lamb, we think of what? Gentle, cuddly. Throw that vision out. (laughs) Understand who Jesus is. Yes, he was slain. But he is alive forevermore, and he will return, and judgment is coming. Woe to those who face the wrath of the Lamb, and every eye will see him. John gets more specific. Even those who pierced him. This is a subgroup of that inhabitants of the earth. This is probably a reference to the Jewish people who were instrumental in his death. But it could also include the Romans that... were um, a part of it. Specifically, it would be all those that were akin to him or to that group. It's important to note, not all Israel will see his judgment and, um, and what I mean by this and experience his wrath. Some, as we will see, will repent before they face the wrath. As we will see, many of them and many of Israel, much of Israel will believe in the Messiah. The early generation of Jews and Romans obviously have died, correct? So who is this? This is most likely a group similar to them and related to them in some way. 
This group will be the witnesses of the coming wrath of the Lamb. Throughout history, throughout the history of the church specifically, has the church faced people just like those that persecuted Christ? Absolutely. Nero, Domitian, the waves of persecution. Even at the Reformation, there were hundreds that were killed. Again, over and over, and even today in China, right? Or in the Muslim countries. This persecution continues on. But every eye will see him when he returns. When the Lord comes, the group of people that are similar in type to those who pierced him will see him. Listen, folks. Those who might mock, excuse me, those who mock Christ as being less than who he is, as revealed in Scripture, will one day face him. It's a fact. This is the promise. The one who has been mocked, the one who has been put down for Christ's name, Christ will be vindicated. They may see, or they may say, where is he now? But one day, this group will see him, and they will face his judgment. He's the one who's coming in glorious judgment, and all will see him. Notice third, Christ's coming in judgment will cause horror for those who see him. Look at what it says. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Now, this morning, we might think, oh, well, they're going to cry and say, oh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, right? No, this word mourning literally means to wail. Oh, I'm going to face the judgment. Kind of reminds me of a couple of, oh, we'll have to edit this out, a couple of our spanking occurrences. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's coming. It's coming. And all the tribes of the earth. Now, it's interesting. He gets even more specific here. Every ethnic group within the nations. Every ethnic group within the nations all over the earth will see him. And they will mourn over him. They will wail because they have rejected him. And the reality of their impending judgment will cause horror. Man, does this sound like sinners in the hands of angry God? Am I going right back through the same stuff? This is what we need. This is what our society is missing. Would you not agree? What is our society missing? A healthy fear of God. We have none in our country, do we? None. And I'm afraid that our own fear of God is very light, isn't it? If we had this fresh on our memories, would sin be so rampant even in our own lives? Whoa, whoa. The wrath of the Lamb is coming will cause horror, literally. This morning does not necessarily mean that they will repent, as I mentioned. Look at Revelation 9. Look at this. Man, this, this, there's theology here. Lots of theology here. Great doctrine. Look at 9. Look at 9.20. Look at this. This is the sixth trumpet judgment at the end of it. Verse 20, 
And in verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by the three pegs, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths, for the power of the horses in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads within them to do harm. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorcerers, sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Now, wait a second. Judgment, 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 judgment. And yet, what doesn't happen? No repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm listening back through this revelation over and over and over, I'm going, why not? I don't get it. it he, at points, the judgment is even declared to be from God. Specifically, announced to the world. This is coming from God. And yet, no repentance. What does this say about the heart of mankind? And yet, somewhere in our society, we think that we can woo people by being good to them. Give them, making it seeker easy. Being a seeker-sensitive church doesn't work, just like the wrath doesn't work. Having the wrath poured out, how wicked does this show our hearts to be apart from Christ? How ugly is your life apart from Christ? Apart from God's grace working in you, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We'd be no different. What does it say about my own heart? What does it say about your heart? Apart from God's grace, it says what? We're lost. And we're wicked. And we hate God apart from God. Apart from His grace. It reminds me of the demons. They wail over Christ. In Matthew 8, it says, 8.28, When he had came to the other side in the country of the Gennesaret, two men were, who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs, and they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. So you think, well, these demons come up and attack Jesus. No. And they cry out. They cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment us? They have a great view of God, don't they? <laughs> yes and no. Not surrendered. Wail over him, but not surrendered. Not submissive. They're afraid of him. Mark 1.23, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is the one who's coming, ladies and gentlemen. It reminds me of James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons shudder over Jesus. 
we'll see in Revelation 1 next week, when John sees Jesus, the glorified Jesus, what does he do? He falls at his feet as a dead man. When was the last time that you had this kind of glimpse of Christ? No, we complain to him, and we shake our finger at him, and we say, why me? Oh, we need a change, don't we? He's coming with the clouds. And those who see him will wail over him. I don't know about you, but this, this strikes me deep in my heart for those that don't know him. As I study this book and I start linking and meditating on the tribulation and the wrath of the Lamb, I am crushed to the soul, to the heart, deeply over my father. My earthly father. How about you? You want a good motivation for evangelism? Here it is. Read Revelation. These people are going to face the judgment of Christ. This is a promise. He's coming in glorious judgment. And everyone will see him. And it will produce horror from everyone. What kind of impact should this have on us, ladies and gentlemen? I think it would be a great purifying effect on the church, wouldn't it? Is this who you serve? No, I serve the baby in the manger. He didn't stay in the feeding trough. He's not there anymore. He's coming. And he's going to come with all of God's wrath. Yet, at the same time, it does give us hope, doesn't it? It does give us hope, doesn't it? Why? Because no matter how much we see the world falling down around us, and as wicked as it can possibly be, we know one day Christ is going to make right everything. And the just judge is coming. And I do long for that day, don't you? Where sin and wickedness and debauchery will be paid for. You know, throughout the history of the church, we even saw it in our hymn book today. I love this. Go there again. Mighty fortresses are God. Get your hymn book. This is a good one. I guess we'll get to the other part tonight. Mighty fortresses are God. Page number 26. Martin Luther had a, a proper view of God and of Christ. Look at verse 3. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed 
his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I love that verse. Christ is coming. In glorious judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Help us, Father, to have a better view, a better understanding of who Christ is. As we study this book, we pray that you will open our eyes to who Christ is. Thank you that he did come to save us from our sin. Thank you that he did provide an atonement for our sin. Thank you that he will return one day to bring justice and righteousness to this wicked and evil world. We trust you, Lord. We find our hope in you alone. We pray this in Christ's name.